Hey, um, like Chris said, and like has been mentioned, it's the third Sunday of Advent, and um, we've been lighting an Advent candle each of these weeks. Um, and kind of in order, the, the classic progression of Advent is hope, uh, joy, or I'm sorry, um, hope, peace, joy, and love. And then on Christmas Eve, we will light a fifth candle representing Christ. So this is uh, the joy candle today, and that's kind of our topic for the morning. So um, at my mom's memorial service um, a little over four years ago, um, my brothers and I, in preparation for that, spent a lot of time reflecting on my mom and her life and what would we share and what are the kind of the high points, what has to be said, you know, at an event like that. And one of the things that we commented on is um, my mom's unique, dedicated, and um, kind of fierce Christmas gift-giving procedures. And I just want to read you a a section of some of that speech. Um, My mom loved to give gifts, and she was so good at it that it was almost a handicap to her. She wouldn't, she couldn't, and it wasn't in her being to give a bad gift. A gift card was a non-option, even when I had asked for a gift card. Uh, She loved the moment of surprise, the time of unwrapping. If the gift needed batteries, she had already opened it up put batteries in it, and then rewrapped it so that it could be played with right away. Uh, She was strategic and calculated. If she was buying an item of clothing for her three kind of odd-sized and picky sons, and let's say I wanted the large, she would buy the large, the medium, and the extra large, wrap them all so that if the first one didn't fit, she could whip out the second one um, and have the right size to fit you. So I I think my mom kind of simultaneously loved and loathed the Christmas season because the task of giving to her three sons was both like, it was both full of immense joy and pleasure, but also she had kind of a high bar set for herself. And plus we, like we were kids um, for a lot of that time where um, we were picky and kind of unfiltered in our responses. And one of us three boys, I won't say say which, uh, once wept as he unwrapped an Etch-A-Sketch that he thought was a Game Boy Color. (laughs) And, you know, just like, like immediate, just he tears it open, just big tears. Wasn't me. Um, and when, when we think about this season culturally this, that we're in, kind of the Christmas, the holiday season, there's a broad along sense of fun, surprise, enjoyment, thoughtfulness, and meaningfulness around the idea of giving and receiving gifts. Um, we're invited to unwrap joy, like I was alluding to my fake Honda commercial. Um, like we're, we're given these slow motion scenes of jewelry being unboxed or a car in the driveway with a big red bow on it. Um, Amazon's whole kind of Christmas marketing theme this year is that joy is shared by buying from Jeff Bezos, I think. Um, and in the words of the modern day sage Michael Scott, presents are the best way to show someone you care. It's like, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. But, I mean, the question, the question that it maybe feels obvious to you is, like, is that, is that really joy that we're talking about? Is this the best or most well-rounded picture of this word joy, which is listed, like I said, as one of the four historic themes of Advent? It makes the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. It shows up over 400 times across the story of Scripture. And in the words of the author of, uh, the author of Hebrews, it tells of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, are we talking about the same kind of joy that you can unwrap or unbox? And this joy that's given to us in the story of Scripture that seems to me to have like a little, little depth, a little more depth. Um, 
So maybe have we been conditioned to accept the definition for joy that's getting us to settle for something more like what Apple is calling newphoria. This is a big billboard as I was coming east across the Broadway Bridge. And I appreciate that, Adam's, or that Apple is, is not trying to hide anything. Like it's like, it's just about the new phone. Like we're not trying to pretend there's anything more than you're gonna enjoy this new phone. I think this is a timely conversation and we can all agree that these consumer, consumeristic pictures are probably not the best or most true picture of joy. But if you're like me, if I'm honest, uh, joy feels maybe fleeting. Like it's, it's hard to hang on to. Maybe I can kind of have a memory of it, but it's hard to categorize and hard to find. So on this third Sunday of Advent, this season of learning to wait in hope, in peace, in joy, and in love, I think it's the perfect time that we look to scripture and A, um, we'll find a better definition than just the consumeristic joy of uh, giving and receiving. And B, um, I think we'll see three real and relevant examples of true joy in the Christmas story. So uh, part A is, is better definition. We need a better definition. And so perhaps you've noticed, and if you're um, a podcaster, I think you like, you're maybe up on the trend, but uh, brain science, like as a topic, is having a bit of a cultural moment. In the last decades, the scientific understanding of the human brain has expanded quite exponentially. And that means that in the last couple of years that all that kind of exponential finding and research comes kind of into the popular stream and consciousness. And one of the voices kind of from this world of work is this guy, um, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Um, he has a podcast called the Huberman Labs Podcast. I won't pretend like I've listened to all of it, but he's a very interesting, smart guy. And in a Time Magazine article from June of this year, it's titled, um, How Scientist Andrew Huberman Got America to Care About Science. The author notes that the Stanford University neuroscientist consistently ranks among the top 10 podcasts on Spotify and Apple in the world and has more than three and a half million subscribers on YouTube. It's like, what, this nerd? Like, He's doing that well. Um, yes, like on, on some level, his success is probably tied to the maybe vain idea that people like to feel smart. And so when you listen to a smart person talk, you kind of like glean some of that. And you know, he's charismatic, he's cool. Um, and that certainly helps in kind of the translation of these big ideas. I think another fuel to kind of the hot topic of it is the desire of many to kind of optimize or life hack or kind of shortcut our way to the good life. Like if I can get better sleep, like more fitness, better focus, happiness, if, if my morning coffee can do the most for me that it can, like we're, we're interested in some of those shortcuts or those hacks. But I think, or to stay in the vocabulary, I would hypothesize that Another reason for kind of the energy and interest in, in brain science, like collectively, is that as science kind of validates the depth and complexity of the existence that we all live, we are then yearning for ways to like make sense of what it means to be human, to categorize and then be able to talk about and translate what it means to live as me, as like this human being. I, I wanna know like what makes me like and also what makes me totally unique amongst my now eight billion earthly neighbors. And so I, I think as a Christian, I actually get to call a lot of this beautiful um, because as modern science kind of moves us towards an understanding, um, it moves us towards an understanding that scripture has always held. 
that we are not, human beings are not the result of pure random collision of atoms, and there's far more going on in our holistic selves than just the firing of neurons, the formation of synapses, or chemical reactions. So we should not, we should not, we should not settle for cheap definitions for the deep and meaningful and dynamic experiences of life. One um, significant aspect of kind of this cultural moment that brain science seems to be having is that it highlights not only the work of kind of secular scientists, but also those who come to the topic with or through the lens of faith in Jesus and the belief that human design starts with God. And um, the name that's been mentioned from the stage before is a guy named Dr. Jim Wilder. Um, and he has both a PhD in psychology and a master's degree in theology, and he calls himself a neurotheologian which I think is great, awesome made up name. And he, building on the work of, um, of other neuroscientists like Dr. Alan Shore, they propose a very different definition for our little word joy today. So they say that joy is the experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. The experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. Now, we kind of have to let that sink in because this is a, like a very different framework for defining joy. And, and I'm not asking you to even buy it right away. That's okay. But just like, like take it from these guys and say like, okay, can I even take 10 seconds right now? Maybe you can close your eyes with me. And can I picture that moment of, see, of meeting somebody or seeing someone and watching their face light up at me? Maybe this is immediate. Maybe this happened to you this morning. Maybe it, you have to kind of call it back in our memory. But a lot of us can like, can connect kind of the emotive or even the physical response to that feeling. And what I appreciate about the work of Dr. Wilder and others is that it's not just like, it's not just a different definition for the sake of being different. Like, just because we're Christians, we have to do things differently. Um, it, it, they're looking at, at uh, the brain and joy's role in human development. They're, they're noting that our formation into people really starts in kind of the low and then the right side of our brains. Um, the areas that are connected with emotion, with intuition, with relationships, the parts of our brain that enable building healthy attachments, first with, first with our parents or caregivers, and then with others. And so they, they put significant work into understanding the, the reality that joy is an essential ingredient in our ability to form healthy attachments, even before we have like the rational language or logical kind of functions to go along or even talk about um, these capacities. So they're taking this understanding of the brain and they're pairing it with places in, in scripture that, that talk about some of the same ideas. Um, Psalm 1611, it says, the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Translated more literally from the Hebrew, that phrase with joy in your presence could be read as with fullness of your face. So this idea of like seeing somebody else's face. Um, there's a connection between joy and being face-to-face, -face, being seen by God. Number six, 22 through 26, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The blessing that God gives to the Israelites is all about the idea of the face of God and the gift and the blessing that it is for to be seen by God. And if we look at the, the story of how God interacts with people um, and, and kind of from their deliverance out of Egypt and into the wilderness and then into the promised land, the, the God's intention with the Israelites is to, 
he's doing all these things to let them know that he sees them. He's, he's putting immense effort into convincing them that there's a relational context that he's inviting them to. New Testament, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he uses the same idea of how God reveals and shares joy. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So again, our, our definition, joy is the experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. This is true, it's true in our brains. It's true in the way we first form and maintain healthy attachment. And over the library of scripture, our English translations often give us this little word joy for ideas connected to seeing God and being seen by God. And um, Dr. Wilder and, and uh, uh, Wilder and Hendricks in their book, The Other Half of Church, they offer kind of three big conclusions about joy. And I think this is just to kind of sum up this idea so far. One, uh, joy is important to God and to us. It's not just like us chasing after something that feels good. It's important. It's, it's in our creation materials. Number two, joy is primarily transmitted through the face and especially the eyes and then secondarily through voice. And three, joy is relational. It's what we feel when we're with someone who is happy to be with us and it does not exist outside of relationship. So as we look towards the birth story of Jesus, like let's look for these themes. These are the things that I think will come to the surface as we try and uh, take this definition for joy and say, does this hold up with the story of scripture? Luke, starting chapter one, verse 39, says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, a little backstory. The Gospel of Luke documents this very strange story, like, right away. So Mary, in many ways, a, a kind of random um, young Jewish woman, likely in her teens, based off kind of the normal ages for marriage in the time, is pledged to be married to Joseph. And she has this wild experience of a messenger from God coming to her and essentially saying, surprise, you've been chosen for the wild task of carrying and giving birth to a very special baby, and uh, your husband-to-be is, is not going to have anything to do with this baby coming to me. Um, she's naturally, I, like scripture uses the word, it says, Mary was troubled. It's like, if that's not the biggest understatement of the century. Um, she has some questions, but to her immense credit, um, she kind of chooses an attitude of faith and accepts this reality. And she hurries off to see and stay with her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zachariah, who um, Elizabeth is, is also shockingly secretly pregnant in her old age, and um, will give birth to a son who will later be known as John the Baptist. So picking up where we left off, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promise to her. Okay, there, there's a lot going on in a couple of verses. In, in the meeting of these two expectant mothers, there's their kind of physical meeting, them coming to the same physical space. There's the, the kind of conversation, the words exchanged between the two of them. There's leaping babies. There's the Holy Spirit. There's kind of this prophetic revelation that Elizabeth has. It, it's, it's a little bit sensory overload. Um, but this week I read uh, kind of a poetic 
uh, interpretation or retelling of these verses that just brought some kind of new color to the story for me. And um, I'd like to read this to you. This is from a little book called Preparing for Jesus. It's a guy named Walter Wayne Guerin Jr. And this is how he retells what we just read. He says, Elizabeth gasps. She can't breathe. Mary's bright eye, something strange, is piercing Elizabeth even to the secret in her soul. Mary knows. Here is the mirror of her mind. They've told no one, no one. Yet this eager young woman knows that she, in spite of her old age, has conceived a baby in her womb and is pregnant. Who told her? What's happening? Mary blooms like an opening rose. Her whole being unfolds before Elizabeth. In the greeting, she utters her kinswoman's name. She whispers, Elizabeth. And straight away, Elizabeth, too, flushes with a bright pink joy and recognition. The sound of Mary's voice is so familiar. It sends forth news, even as blossoms release their scent upon the wind. Mary, too, is pregnant. Something's happening. Elizabeth is on the edge of tears, for here in young, fresh Mary is the mirror of her own condition. Sisters, sisters, they are both with child. But before the tears drop, before the woman can rush her cousin to hug her, before she can utter the first word of greeting in return, the tiny prophet low in her womb expresses his first prophecy. Already filled with the Holy Spirit, already preparing the way, the baby leaps for joy at the sound of the voice of the mother of his Lord. Oh yes, something wonderful is happening. A new thing is springing forth into the world and all at once, Elizabeth knows what it is, for she sees through the window of her cousin's condition into the mind of God. This is the Messiah. One of the things that stands out to me, both from uh, the verses we read and this retelling, is that there's this big impact that Elizabeth has on Mary. Before this moment, I, I don't know that I see or read a lot of hope or joy in Mary's countenance. Like, yes, she's accepting. She's been obedient. She's willfully going along with it. But until this moment, I, I, I do wonder, like, is there a lot of positive emotion coming with the whole situation? Or is it just like wildly confusing, terrifying, um, and unsettling? But as she comes face to face with her cousin, Elizabeth, the whole thing seems to change. Elizabeth's spirit-filled, joyful revelation in response to Mary, the eye contact, the conversation, the, the giddiness I hear in Elizabeth's greeting brings, it actually brings a song out of Mary. Um, Luke 1, Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I think that Mary has changed her tune, that she's rejoicing in this moment. She, with new clarity, I think, sees the goodness of actually what's happening. She's no longer alone in it. And in having kind of the good news mirrored back to her, she actually praises God and experiences joy. This is like joy is relational. It forms in a relational context. It's transmitted through the eyes, through the word. It's the experience of someone else's face lighting up when they see you. Now, it, it, you could hear this and say, like, you're just stripping the mystery and the spirituality out of the, out of the verses, and I, I hope not. But I, what, what I see is that both in kind of our God-given physicality, like what's happening in our brains and in our hearts and our bodies, and in his dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit, we're created for joy. 
true and fulfilling joy. So we fast forward a little bit um, through the rest of Mary's pregnancy, and in Luke 2, we find Mary and Joseph, and they're traveling back to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem, because of a political decree by the occupying powers. And um, my wife's pregnant, and I, I just sense like how terrible timing this whole thing is. And these little conversations that they're having over the 93 miles that they're walking and riding this donkey of just Mary and Joseph's, she's like, do, do we really, Joseph, do we have to? Like, are you sure? Like, really? Okay. Are you sure? Um, Mary is very pregnant. And uh, they come to Bethlehem, like, comically late to everybody else that's also going to Bethlehem. So that the, the whole town is full, and they find themselves having this baby in the animal shelter, in the dark, kind of stinking mess of a stable. Christmas carols are wonderful, but sometimes they paint this picture that, like, this stable was, like, the coolest little Airbnb and nobody else had found it. And I just, like, I think we have to, like, erase that. Like, it's, it's the animal house. It's gross. It stinks. It's dark. It is not merry and bright, I don't think. Luke 2, verse 8. And there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And I think a, a couple of contextual details just about the shepherds that we should remember is that this little crew out in the fields, uh, responsible for however many hundreds of sheep, um, they're outside this already rural town doing a dirty job. They're on the night shift. And this is not a desirable profession. There's like nice paintings of kind of the beautiful rolling hills that a shepherd would wander and waltz and play his flute for his little sheep. And I just don't, that's not, that's not how it is. Um, they didn't choose to be shepherds, likely. It's likely what their, their dads did, or they couldn't quite hack a city job, and so they are kind of out, outside of town with the animals. They're the down-and-outs. They um, professionally have their reputation of being deceitful and being people who steal. Luke 2, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Correct response. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good, no good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to the, those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had, angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Andrew Huberman, that cool Stanford scientist, um, he comments on the relationship between awe and delight. He says, awe is when we are overwhelmed by an experience and it takes over all of our senses. Delight is when awe intersects our personal narrative, when we have something to do with that thing that is creating awe. I think this is what's happening to the shepherds. Obviously, the angel has to start with do not be afraid. Um, this is wild. Chances of this happening to the shepherds before, it hasn't, okay? Um, but the sky tears open and the heavenly messenger drops the ground-baking newsflash. This is good news that will cause great joy for all people. And a savior has been born to you, not to the world, not the savior has been born for everybody. The savior has been born to you. The promise of, the promise of joy goes from awesome 
it's personal in that the message is specifically to them. And as someone who's, who's heard this story for many years of my life, um, it takes some slowing down to remember that as the reader, I should be thinking like, messengers, 10 out of 10 on delivery, you totally missed your audience. Like, like wrong guys to be given this big display to. But this is no mistake. The God of heaven has, cho- has chosen to make his good news intersect the personal narratives of the ragtag group of sheep watchers. And what's more, that joyful promise that they're given from heaven is delivered on rather quickly as they go and visit and see this baby Jesus in Bethlehem. They found it all just as the angels had said, and there's this note in there about how um, as they spread the word, people were amazed at what, shepherd, at what the shepherds told them. I think primarily because it's like, this is not what shepherds say. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So they go back to their, their night jobs, I should say, um, but their existence has been changed. Like the way they live is different now. Awe has turned itself into joy as they have a personal encounter with heaven itself and not an empty promise or something they have to wait very long for, but they come face to face with this baby Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Kind of picture number three, Mary, Joseph, and now five to six week old baby Jesus are making their way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for Jesus's presentation at the temple. And as a firstborn Jewish boy, this is, this is protocol. There's nothing particularly um, messianic about this, this trip. Um, this is what baby Jewish boys did. Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Um, sorry. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here in the story of this man, Simeon, we again see these truths about joy, that joy is relational, it's magnified and it grows in the presence of person-to-person interaction. And if we talk about hope as like the expectation of good things, then joy really kind of blooms or comes to life when something that's hoped for is realized or like the promise is delivered upon. C.S. Lewis, um, in his kind of spiritual memoir, Surprised by Joy, he says, joy is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Simeon's story and his response to meeting the Messiah give us a real picture of what it means to experience joy as the promise is fulfilled, but also what does it mean to be like righteous and devout and full of the spirit as we wait. The sensation of someone else's face lighting up when they see you can actually accompany all sorts of experiences and life events. Um, It has like a pervasive quality, whether joy is actually like right in front of us or if it's a memory or something we're looking forward to. Um, And so some psychologists, because of that reason, they call it a a supra emotion, meaning it can kind of go on top of or alongside of other emotions. 
which is, which is why like, you can be joyful even when you're experiencing something sad, or you can be joyful while you're waiting. You can experience joy. Um, we sing a song that, that says, it says, I still have joy in chaos, which I think is like um, kind of a really clear picture of this idea. In, uh, as I referenced earlier, um, in the, the book, The Other Half of Church, they say that our identity is built and formed by joy-bonded relationships. The identity center in our brain grows in response to joy, which helps us act like ourselves in all situations. So as Simeon um, anticipates and then has this realized experience of the first advent of this, of this Messiah being born, the, or the arrival of the Messiah, we then are existing between these two advents the one where Jesus is born and then the one where he returns in glory and fulfills the promise of bringing his kingdom in full. And this, I, it, I've, I, I've been raised in the church and I think there's some sense of this idea where it, um, I get told like we're in no man's land. Like, like it's like, sorry, you're between the advents, like bad luck being born at this time of the scope of history. But I, I just think there's like some better news in, in like where we've been born into time and space in history because we get to both have like the joy experienced of what Simeon has, which is the, this Messiah born, that God was born um, and is delivering on his relational promise to be with his people. Through his Holy Spirit, we can actually come face to face with God. And we also are, are doing the same thing Simeon does, which is waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. Uh, Henry Nouwen, um, in, a, in A Spirituality of Waiting, he says, people who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They've received something that is at work in them, like a seed that has started to grow. We can only really wait if what we're waiting for has already begun in us. So waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It is always a movement from something to something more. So our God has this proven track record, both in the desire to be with us and the demonstration of his affection. And so in our, in my life, in your life, in this time and space, there are so much of the raw materials for joy at our, at our fingertips. But it would be a huge disservice to you um, for me to just say, like, so have joy, goodbye, Merry Christmas. Because, like, that we'd leave and say, that was a nice idea. Like, I like that whole thing about the smiling and the eye contact, and that's really nice. But in, we have to remember that, that this is true across our spiritual lives, is that information is not formation. It doesn't immediately transform it. There's an application step, and particularly if joy is relational, we need um, ways to implement joy. And uh, I was thinking about like the, the coffee mugs or the Instagram posts or the throw pillows that, that kind of have this phrase like choose joy, right? If you have one of these in your house, I apologize. I'm, I'm going to tear it apart. Um, uh, but choose joy. Like it's nice. It sounds very good. You put it on a Christmas card or something. But it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer because um, I can't by myself actually just choose it or create it or like just come up with joy. Uh, same book, Other Half of Church. We do not directly choose to be more joyful any more than we can choose to have lower blood pressure. And it's, this is perhaps a silly example, but I, I have a scar on the back of my head. It's about this long, I'm told. Um, and I can't see it, right? Um, the way I got it, I was at a, a youth camp um, on the Oregon coast, seventh grade, 
and I was running as fast as I could away from this grown man in a cow costume, so, like it was a whole thing. And like, and I fell, I hit my head, um, and I got stitches that night. I don't know if it was a doctor or a veterinarian, but I got stitches, and so I've got this little this little scar. And and I I can't see the scar like as as hard as I try. Even with a, a good mirror or a combination of mirrors, I can never quite see it. It's only revealed to me as like my barber points it out or I see it in a picture or, um, or like Chloe, if she's standing behind me, says, oh, there's your little scar. And my hair is like longer now, so you really can't see it, but it, it only reveals itself in some sort of relational context. So, it, it, and Galatians remind us that, that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the, the creation, it's not the prerequisite for the Spirit, it actually comes out of the Spirit. So I, I can't, by myself, create joy. It's the result of being in a relationship with God, to be close enough to God to be filled with His Spirit. But what you can do, and this is proven true um, through brain science, is you can increase your capacity for joy and tune your brain to return to joy. So I've actually got a better throw pillow if you would like to exchange yours. Grow your capacity for joy through neuroplasticity and spiritual formation. So (laughs) these are up in my Etsy shop, and you can... um, if you have a choose joy pillow, I'll swap it out free of charge. No. So, so as created beings, the way God has wired us, because our brains are not static, they actually do grow and change based on how we live and what happens to us, uh, we actually have capacity to increase, or I'm sorry, we actually have the ability to increase our capacity for joy. And so every week through Advent, we've been trying to take on one of these analog assignments, like something that actually slows us down and then gears us more toward the kind of the theme of the week, to experience God in that theme. And we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of a two-parter. One we're going to do right now, all together, and the second one you're going to take with you. So part one um, is, we'll call it a, a nonverbal gratitude exercise. And this, this is, again, um, from the research of uh, Wilders and Hendricks, Wilder and Hendricks. And um, they talk about this, this practice of, or I'm sorry, this activity of practicing nonverbal gratitude. And so um, I'm, I'm going to invite you to do this right now. It takes just a few seconds. And so if it helps to put your feet on the floor, close your eyes, I'll guide us through this. But the first step is to find a memory that makes you feel grateful and connected to God in that moment. There's no shame in how long this takes you or if it's instant at your fingertips. Like, take a minute. Can you find a memory that makes you feel grateful and connected to God in the moment? And as you have your eyes closed, just mentally go back and, and relive that memory. Like, what can you see? What do you hear? What are the kind of sensations associated with the memory? Just for a few seconds, kind of put, your, put yourself mentally back in that scene. So you can open your eyes, but the, the questions to ask is how, how does reliving that memory make, your, make you feel in your body? Like, do you, ha- do you have that memory like kind of stored as an ache like in your chest? Or is there a, like a tingling maybe? Or um, does it bring like a smile to your face where you fe- actually feel your cheeks start to rise as you remember it? 
And then the, the, the kind of the other evaluation question is, is there something that God might have been wanting to impress on you by that memory? So I'll give you one of mine, because I've been thinking about this, and you're just learning it. But um, this summer, this past summer, uh, Chloe and Simon and I made this habit of, um, on the weekends, getting out to Savi Island, like, early in the morning. It was warm enough to be out on the beach, and so we're out on the, on the Columbia River, on the sandy beach, on Savi Island. And the memory I have, the one that kind of pops as I do this exercise, is I'm sitting on the blanket and I've got sand and then water. And between um, kind of me and the water, I'm watching Simon. He's facing the water and he's got this big goofy sun hat on. He's got his shirt off. And, and on kind of the left middle side of, the, of his little three-year-old back, he's got this one freckle and I can see it. And he's quiet and he's playing with a little tractor in the sand. And I know Chloe's sitting next to me in my memory. I don't quite see her, but I know she's sitting next to me. And I feel kind of the warmth in the air and the breeze and the very quiet sound of kind of the water um, lapping on the sand. And that memory to me is like, just produces a ton of gratitude. It was really like simple. Um, and I think that's part of why it's so special to me is it, it, it was simple. And as I just kind of um, imagine what God is inviting me to or speaking to me through that memory, um, I, I was praying about this yesterday and just said, God, like, what, what is it? That why, like, why does that memory stand out so much? And I just feel like the Lord was saying, like, I'm, enjo- I'm enjoying this scene even more than you are. Like, I love your family and I'm glad to be with you glad to be here with you. Remembering what has and will connect us to God helps us remember mentally and physically what joy looks like, and it actually paves and kind of carves the channels of our brains to be able to return to joy, even if my situation is not particularly happy or fun. And so the, the practice, that practice, they uh, recommend finding like 10 of these memories and kind of having a shorthand reference point. So maybe mine is Savi Island Beach, right? And actually like logging these so that uh, daily you can practice like nonverbal gratitude as a pathway to joy, even in a couple quiet minutes, like on your car ride or on your car drive to work or in the morning if you have some minutes to yourself, like to practice gratitude because it, it physically changes us and spiritually invites us to capacity for joy. So that was part A. That's part one. You can go and do it more. Do it more. Let's see what happens. Um, And then a part two for our analog assignment. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as they come up, there's also some volunteers who are going to bring you um, a blank postcard and a pen and a writing utensil. And it's not only knowing um, that God lights up at us when he sees us, it's the invitation to help other people experience joy. That, that in kind of the symbiotic relationship of uh, being smiled at, we are also people who smile at others and inspire an experience of joy. Some of the people that I think do this the best um, are, are Mosaic Youth Leaders. Like, if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler and you show up on a Wednesday, like, uh, it, uh, we want it to feel like you're the one we've been waiting for. And so as kids come through the door, um, there's just like this eruption of, oh my gosh, you're here. We knew you were coming and we're so glad you're here. Or we haven't seen you in a couple of weeks, but we're smiling. Um, I, I really love that about um, our culture of youth ministry. 
And so on that postcard, as it comes to you, um, you're not writing a whole huge long message right now, but I would love to invite you, even for 30 seconds, uh, to, to maybe in, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, just think on these two questions. is Who am I grateful for? And then who in my life like, needs to be seen? If joy is this experience of being seen and being lit up at, then who could I actually take this very simple act of like writing a postcard to and deliver on a little bit of joy? So um, some music's going to start to play. We can let the room be quiet. And just for a few seconds, could you find the name, kind of write it on that top line of those address bars, and then as our analog assignment this week, could we commit to just delivering on a little bit of gratitude that might inspire joy, building our capacity or helping somebody else's capacity grow in joy. As you do that, um, the band is going to lead us in more worship and invite us to communion. But be reminded that the God of the universe smiles at you, is delighted to see you, and he's doing a whole lot of work to prove that to you over and over again.